Thank you, Natalie. And for the record, it wasn't his foot. It was the little section of shoe that doesn't, his toe doesn't even, so he didn't even touch it. No, it was a great time. Maybe we'll hear a few more stories and Kingdom Life updates from the folks. It was a really neat thank you for those. Some of you gave to the mission trip, which was awesome. Some of you prayed. We're actively praying for the mission trip. It was a, it was a, a beautiful time, and hopefully we'll share more stories um, with you as time progresses. I want to talk and lead with a virtue no, no, I'm not going to call it a virtue. I'm going to call it a characteristic within someone that bugs me more than any other characteristic in an individual. It's a characteristic that, that gets under my skin like no other. And as I'm speaking to you, I'm falling under conviction that I need to respond better when I see this characteristic coming out of people. This characteristic is arrogance. When I, when I hear it in the words, when I see it in action, when I, and, and unfortunately, this characteristic is all over our culture in almost every sphere. I was thinking of sports. Is there any arrogance in sports? Just a, a little bit. So anyone... I know we're not supposed to like mixed martial arts as Christians, but if just occasionally, Conor McGregor, anyone know that name, right? Where you see him fight. The first time I saw him fight, I was like, wow, that is so impressive. I admire how in mixed martial arts they bring together Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and wrestling, all sorts of things, like the skill that goes in. And then he opened his mouth and I heard him and I was like, oh. And I started rooting against him, right? It, fight, even though I thought he was an awesome fighter, I'm like, no, he needs to be humbled. And in fact, he has been humbled, right? I Googled the most arrogant celebrities. In Hollywood, is there a little bit of arrogance, maybe? Just a little? I won't go through the whole list, but one that uh, caught my attention was Alec Baldwin. And that brings a, a biblical point of pride goes before the fall. God really stands opposed to the proud, as we read in, in the scripture beforehand. I was thinking of politicians. I, I think that's an area that just breeds arrogance, right? The, they have to raise so much money. They have to talk about how awesome they are. It, it's really dangerous, right? To, uh, I would think on, on both sides of the aisle, like it's, it's hard to think uh, of those that don't have a, a little bit of arrogance that flows from that. I was thinking of pastors, was there arrogance in pastors? Unfortunately, yes. There's a lot of arrogance. I was reading an article on signs that your pastor is arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> and it was listing like a lot, yeah, unteachable, don't want to respond to authority, doesn't want to share the limelight, all, uh, all of those kind of things. Uh, um, yeah, that was there. 
Now, on the other side, on the reverse side, the opposite end, there is a characteristic, and I would call this a virtue, that I, I would say that I admire most and that I look for most. It's the opposite of arrogance. What would that be? A humility. We, we talked about it at the table. This idea, and I, I, I think the, I'm a little dissatisfied with the Webster's definition of humility. It is freedom from arrogance or pride. It only helps us a little bit there. And I was thinking if I could come up with a biblical uh, definition of humility, it would be this, is that we see ourselves rightly or with clarity before God. Paul says this in Romans 12, 13. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. In other words, he's saying, yeah, we can actually think too low of ourselves. Like God has given us. Uh, a calling, gifts, passion, right? And, and it's okay to be honest and real about those gifts, right? We don't want to minimize, that's false humility, if we, we, we kind of just, you know, minimize what we're good at. But also, um, we can maximize those. We can really bring those so high that we're missing the mark. So a sense of humility is just standing before God and really with clarity, with authenticity, being able to look at both our strengths and weaknesses, not trying to cover up our weaknesses so we look good on the outside, but we're, we're real and honest with God, with ourselves and with others. Now we've been working through the book of Jonah. If you've brought your Bibles, you want to turn to the book of Jonah. Use the table of contents. It's buried in the Old Testament. It's, it's a very small book. And we've been walking through, would you say that Jonah has been demonstrating humility up to this point? I mean, chapter one, absolutely not, right? So God calls him to go to Nineveh, and he goes the opposite direction. I would say obedience to God flows out of humility. Now, you could argue that Scott, chapter two, last week, we saw Jonah turn toward to God in prayer. There was an element, prayer requires humility. Now, his life was on the line. <laughs> So really, the real question is, will that humility last for Jonah? At least in chapter 3, I, I think it does, but I believe in chapter 3, we see a demonstration of what I would call true humility. That, that we see individuals believe what God says about them. That's really my definition of humility, is that we believe what God says about us. That's good or bad. I believe it's found in humility. God says that we are beloved, and he cares for us. Part of humility is, is believing 
that he loves us deeply, that he invites us to be sons and daughters of him. But also part of humility is when he names or brings conviction or tries to bring conviction about our sin, about an attitude, about something we're doing, we say, yeah, you're God, I'm not, I believe you. And this true humility is not demonstrated by Jonah, unfortunately, I would say more so, it's demonstrated by the Ninevites, the Assyrians that God has called Jonah, even though it goes the opposite way, that's why the big fish comes, but he's thrown up on the shores of uh, Assyria, goes to Nineveh, and then he preaches a message of repentance that doom and destruction is going to come, judgment is going to come, and then Let's note how the Ninevites respond. Chapter 3 of Jonah says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Chapter 1, we start with the word of God coming to Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed. A different story. Chapter 1, it said, But Jonah ran the other way, but chapter 3, second time, Jonah obeys. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was a a sign of repentance. Uh, uh, Ashes were a sign of repentance, of saying, yes, we've done wrong. We're confessing our sin before God. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, this will be interesting, right? Think about the king of Assyria, right? Assyria was the most powerful nation in the known world at the time. The king, he was not, this was not a Jewish people. They had other gods. They were, they were Gentiles. And so you've got this foreign prophet, this Jewish prophet from a little nation that they were going to conquer in just a little bit, right? This little nation from uh, proclaiming a different God, this little nation, Jewish prophet, comes to the biggest city, the renowned city in the area, Nineveh. And he says, my God says, you guys are doing it wrong. Repent. I mean, this is a recipe for the king to say, who are you? What are you talking? Kill him, right? To say, what are you talking about? Kind of to respond like Pharaoh of Egypt responded to God, right? He just blow this off. Do you really think this is going to have any kind of relevance or power to the king of Nineveh? Let's read. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, 
took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. What a heart. Can you imagine the Conor McGregors of the world, the Alec Baldwins, all the people in power taking off their jackets, their royal robes, and putting on sackcloth and sitting in the ashes. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. This is again the king. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. He's declaring a fast. Stop eating and start praying, people. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. I love how he included in his decree that animals are to wear sackcloth as well. I, I just get in my mind like cows and chickens walking around with little sackcloth dresses on, right? A, a little child in Nineveh, Mom, why do the chickens have sackcloth? Well, there's this prophet from Isaiah. What, what are you talking about? Uh, yeah, he, I mean... They go all in, both feet, in repentance. They believe God. All in. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Remember, we talked about how violent this culture was, how much sin was in it. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Even in that statement, who knows? I hear humility, right? They don't repent in an arrogance like a, a, a quid pro quo. Like if we say, okay, God, we'll do this, but then you have to. You've promised that if we repent, then you won't send calamity on us. No. They say, God's right. He can condemn our sin. He's God. We're not. We're violent. We're hurtful. We're angry. Everybody, let's repent. Let's put on sackcloth. Let's call out to God. He'd still be justified in destroying us because of our sin. But who knows? Maybe he would have compassion on us. True humility. The last verse when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. I think there's a, just a couple of really powerful kingdom life truths that we can take from this chapter. We've been trying to walk through uh, Jonah with a lens towards sharing the love of God 
with others. That, that um, it's our perspective that Jonah is perhaps one of the worst evangelists in all of scripture, and yet we can learn a lot from him. And I, I think it's interesting to note, now when we were talking about this chapter three as a teaching team, especially Pastor Jedediah, he's like, this is terrible. Eight words is all Jonah shared as he walks through Nineveh. Eight words is this. He, he says, um, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That, that's all we get. Can imagine him without passion or conviction. I, I think this will be true, especially when we read chapter four next week, but without compassion or conviction, him kind of being like, hey, yeah, you better repent. God's going to destroy you if not, but yeah. Whew, I'm tired. I'm going to go get something, right? He just, he could have really lacked passion. If you think of back to chapter one, you remember his passion uh, with the sailors, how when they were in crisis, when they were Gentiles, they don't know the Lord. And this was the opportunity when the storm is raging and going on that Jonah could have shared the truth about the one true living God. What does Jonah do? He takes a nap. He, he goes down. They have to wake him up to get his testimony from him. I'm actually kind of encouraged from an evangelistic perspective in this that God can use even our feeblest attempts, our most humble attempts to share the love of God with others. If it's just up to us, we're in trouble. Our evangelism, our sharing of the love of God is not going to be very effective, but with God. I mean, we get eight words and then the, the most powerful king in the world takes off his, all of his nobility and responds to Jonah. I remember when I was at, uh, some of you remember Promise Keepers. Remember, it was a men's movement and there was a number and there was a really powerful movement for a while and... And I, I had gone to a number of them, tried to bring some friends to Promise Keepers, and I kind of knew how it went. I knew that on Friday night when you got there, the, there was a, a, a pastor often that would share the gospel and then invite men to respond in faith to the gospel. And this was, well, I'll just share. It was Franklin Graham. I, I really like Franklin Graham, but he was sharing the gospel on Friday night and he was not doing a good job. I just say that, and I, this, I wasn't a pastor yet, but I, even I was like, are people even tracking? Like, I knew what he was trying to do, because I had been to Promise Keepers before, and yet he just, it wasn't making sense, and honestly, I was a little bored, and you know, it, it just, things were happening, and so then he like, gives the call and steps back, and I'm like, this is going to be so embarrassing. Like a stadium full of men, and I don't think that they heard what he was trying to say. And then one or two guys from my section and the section, and all of a sudden, 
there were several hundred men responding to the gospel invitation as they went down in that way. I was thinking back in college when I was, there was a moment where I was in a a fraternity, Sigma Chi, a social fraternity, and I I wanted to share just a a perspective of God in one of our um, fraternity meetings. There's 70 guys. It was super intimidating. I asked my university friends if they would pray for me, and I I had like kind of prepared this like kind of speech to make about the love of God. And it came time in that moment, and I was so nervous. I think I got one or two sentences off. It was more than eight words, but it was like maybe a third of what I wanted to say. And I was, I was crestfallen, and I went back to my friends in university. They're like, how did it go, Eric? And I was like, well. And one just said, Eric, you, you sowed some seeds. God will bless that. You, you did your best. Don't be so hard on yourself. That, that's how God works. Is, is he takes even our humble efforts, even when we, we fumble and, and bumble, if, if our intent is to, is to simply share the love of God. Maybe Jonah's heart absolutely was not in it. We can't know for sure. But even in those moments, even in moments of obedience, reluctant obedience, do you have any of those moments? I have a lot of those moments, reluctant obedience. But that God blesses even those small seeds that we plant. In fact, there is a, there is a, a parable that talks about how small those seeds can be. It's from Matthew 13. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all seeds. Isn't that interesting? It's the, the tiniest of seeds. Yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds can come and perch in its branches. Friends, sometimes when we talk about evangelism and sharing our faith, it can be super intimidating. I don't know how. I don't have the right words. My actions and all that. And what God is saying, listen, I'll do the heavy lifting. It's not up to you. All I'm looking for is that humble heart of obedience. Just just throw that out. Just just kind of cast those seeds in whichever way and and share my love. I'm desperate for this world to know how dramatically I love them. I love them so much that I gave my only begotten son. Would you just the least little bit And I'll work with that. And I'll take those little seeds that you plant and I will grow something beautiful with that. What I've been trying to do for the last while, some of you have heard me, I I talk about it quite a bit, is spirit-led acts of kindness. I'd like to add a word to that. 
small, spirit-led acts of kindness? What if we just today just lived our lives with just trying to, even the smallest of opening the door, saying a kind word, offering to pray with folks? You just don't know in the hands of God the impact that those small seeds are going to have on the heart of people. In our mission trip, it was really fun. We had, we had uh, the, for sports camp, we had 20-plus kids every day, which we didn't know if it was going to work, and it worked, and it was awesome. And it was, uh, the neat things about mission trips is you're just trying to plant seeds. All you can do is so neat to see the team. They were... Uh, uh, creating drills for pickleball and basketball. They were, they were just the kindness of the, the kids. They were sharing little messages in the, in the middle. It was, it, was, it was so neat. And I thought, boy, these 20-plus kids, there's just, there's just a kindness that's happening there. But there was, there was this two kids. They were a little bit older, and, and they didn't want to participate. And so I do have the spiritual gift of annoyance, as my kids know, right? And so I thought, I can use my spiritual gift of annoyance, right? And so all the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I was like bothering these two to get them involved and play and all that. And boy, they would, uh, John was the boy and he was just, this is, that was just, I'm like, John, give me a. Let's try that. Nope. Just, mm-hmm. And so, you know, he'd get a part. Will was really good. He'd just do uh, he'd a little uh, pickleball back and forth just with John to get him engaged and all that stuff. And I thought, boy, these are the two kids that, the, 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 the small seeds of annoyance, I don't know if they're going to have the effect that I'm wanting. But God, just do whatever you want with that. And... Uh, and so the last day, finally, we let him play in water. It was uh, Pastor Brad Robbins' idea, give him some water. And I'm like, John, if you engage in basketball, we'll let you go to the water. We were going to let him go anyways. But I thought, the final shot. So John's like, finally. And John engages and actually is pretty good at basketball. Like, I, I think he got some of that. And so at the end of the time, we're saying goodbye. I'm like, see you, John. And John gives me a hug. I thought, wow. Maybe even God can use the spiritual gift of annoyance to feed. We we don't know. But if we're bringing a heart, if, if we're trying to share the love of God, whatever Jonah's disposition was when he shared those eight words God blessed that and used that so let's start sharing even the small words now here's the second kingdom life truth that I think comes from this story it comes from the very last verse of chapter 3 it really teaches us a little bit about the heart of God. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. And he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This kingdom life truth is this, that God responds to the humble soul. 
Now think about this for a moment, just what we knew, know from archaeological uh, and history is that the Assyrian people were, were pretty nasty people, especially when they conquer, and they conquered a lot, including Israel eventually. They were terrible and nasty. There was a level of violence was there. And yet they turn with true humility and true repentance, and God responds and says, okay. What does that say about God's heart and his desire? You know, that's true all through Scripture. Is there's an invitation when there's an arrogant king of Israel, and if he repents, God responds by relenting and even forgiveness and showing favor to that king. There's a famous, some of you will know the scripture well. In fact, in Promise Keepers, it was a, we sang it. It's from 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Would you think for a moment in light of that scripture, the power of this one virtue of humility in your life, the power of humility in the kingdom of God, it actually represents humility gets you entrance into the kingdom, that you need to, to come and, and be real, that yours is the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus uses that word, there's a, a, a synonym for humility, meekness, and he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He's saying this virtue, all that I have for you, this earth, I'm looking for those with a disposition of meekness, of humility, of, of being real and believing what I say is true about you. Um, there's another Psalm 111.10. Fear of the Lord, fear meaning reverence, a part of humility, is the beginning of wisdom. So humility also brings understanding, depth of character, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, that virtue. Because we're not blinded. We can be blinded by our arrogance, blinded by our insecurity, and yet humility, believing God, helps us grow in wisdom. Psalm 128.4 says, The fear of the Lord brings blessings. God's favor, he's looking for those of us who would believe what he says about who we are. Say, that's the one I'm looking for. Dennis is the one. Nancy is the one. And I'm going to pour out, I'm going to hear from heaven. I'm going to bring healing 
forgiveness and favor into their lives. That's a pretty powerful virtue, isn't it? I would say this has some uh, uh, relevance to how we live daily on a regular basis. I would like to suggest to you to grow in humility can be a tough prospect, especially when you're perfect in every way, quoting the song, right? Now, to grow in that, would you, would you think with me for a moment about that? As I have thought about that, there's a couple things I feel like the Lord's challenged me on. And one is just a, an openness and honesty with myself before God and with others about my shortcomings, about my mistakes, about the things that I'm wrestling with. I mean, that can be challenging in and of itself, right? You have to kind of remove the facade that you carry with yourself to everyone else. Just say, boy, I, I, I wish I was really awesome, but these things tell me I'm not, and I'm working on them. And I've found that some people don't respond well to that. They'll judge you for it. God never will. Right? He always is forgiving. And it's worth it, this virtue. Another thing that I think the king of Assyria really demonstrates is simply to believe what God says about me, of who I am, of the gifts he's given me, but also the things that I struggle with. My identity of who I am. The scriptures as it unfolds. When I read a scripture, and it might be something that I don't like very much. But the road to humility says, I'm going to believe what you say is the right way to live and who I am. third thing is to trust in God's plans and timing for things. Do you ever stop for a moment and realize that you're trying to force some stuff? Force a relationship? Force an activity? Force a, you're, you're just trying to control it, right? And, and you're, tr you're just trying to, you're trying to be the puppet master of this event or relationship or something like that, that you're trying to do that. I'm trying to learn of when I'm trying to force something. I need to go, you know what, God? This is your timing. This is your way. You've got this individual in your hand. I can't force good things on this person. I've got to just let you work in that way. And then finally, I would say when I'm irked by someone, when I'm really bothered by someone, when I'm jealous of someone, 
Usually that's an indication of a lack of humility is jealousy. Then I pray God's destruction on them. That really helps. <laughs> I do just the opposite. Through forced obedience, I pray God's blessing. I pray God's truth, understanding, but I pray God's blessing. I think this relates to evangelism and sharing the love of God with others as well, is that just as God is looking for humility, so I think we can look for humility. Jesus shares this. Um, in, in Luke chapter 10, he sends out um, not his 12, I think it's Luke chapter 9, he sends out his 12 to share the gospel and do the stuff. Luke chapter 10, he sends a larger number of disciples to do the stuff. Who knows how many disciples he sends out to do the stuff? 72. Jedediah, wouldn't that be cool to name a school of ministry? 72. I think that, let's check, note that, right? He sends out the 72. He tells them to preach the gospel and heal the sick. And then he gives this interesting instruction. It's known as the person of peace. Of course, he wants the 72 to be people of peace. As you preach the gospel, you are a person of peace. But then he says, whenever you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, a better translation is, or a more literal translation is, if, if a son of peace is there, if a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. In other words, he's saying to the 72, as you go out and proclaim the kingdom and heal the sick, you're looking for those people as you're sharing the peace of God with them. When you see this person with this disposition of interest, it rests there. Stay there. Because I've already been at work on this responsive heart. So I'm learning, whether it's in my neighborhood, whether for you all in your workplace, wherever, when you're sowing these small spirit-led seeds of kindness, pay attention to the response. And where you see that, that person of peace, where, where the Holy Spirit has already been working, there, there's a softening of heart. Well, pay attention to that. And begin to share more and more as the Spirit leads. I was thinking of, uh, it was a number of years ago when I was a staff worker and we were driving across Illinois. We were heading west, and me and a friend, my roommate, uh, we uh, served uh, together. And we're driving across on a main highway, and we see these two, uh, uh, a young guy, a young gal, and they're hitchhiking. They both had tie-dye shirts. This was a different day. We didn't, we're like, let's, let's pick them up. And 
see if we can stir a conversation about Jesus with them. So we pull over and they load in and, and uh, we, we keep driving across Illinois and we start a conversation and we explained what we're, you know, kind of pastors on a college campus. So we're having an interaction. The guy is really quiet, but the girl is really interacting and talking about her, how she was brought up, and she brought up in church, kind of rejected all of that. And she was so she's kind of debating a little bit with us, and so going back and forth. And all of a sudden, my um, roommate, who's driving, he's like, "So, what do you think to the guy?" And the guy just kind of paused, and he said, "Well, I I know I've I've done a lot of." really bad stuff in this world and I just hope I don't go to hell. And we were like, okay, that's, that's a start. There's a, there's a, a humble a beginning, like he's been thinking about this stuff. It turned out that he had hiked around the world, in, in Europe and so forth, and Asia, and done, and he hadn't shared that, but he just shared, yeah, done a lot of bad things. And so we, they wanted to keep going west, and we were about to turn south, so we, we uh, pulled over, and I had just put an extra Bible in my backpack. And I said, hey, I've got an extra Bible. I know you guys have to carry everything on your back, so you might not want to, but would you like a Bible? And the gal was like, "Mm, yeah, I think it would be too heavy for me. And the guy was like, yeah, I'll, I'll take the Bible. So here's the Gospel of John. My recommendation is read about Jesus. He'll tell you about the love of God. Friends, I think that God desires even our, even our simplest efforts, this incredible message that there's a God who created you and loves you, and no matter what you have done, he invites you into a personal relationship with you. And for those of us who know this, for those of us who have won the lottery in terms of God and faith and spirituality, he's saying, I'm looking for those humble hearts that would be willing to take a risk and share my love with anyone. I'll do the rest. I'll take care of I'll do the heavy lifting. I'll lift. So I want to invite you this morning, Jedediah and worship team, if you want to come up. Did we get that song, Jedediah, or no? Nope. Um, I want to invite you to pray a really dangerous prayer. Perhaps the most dangerous prayer there is. It's dangerous for your ego. Lord, would you teach me humility? Lord, if there's any way that reflects arrogance or rebellion, Lord, would you Would you show me 
Would you speak to me about it? Would you teach me to be humble? Because I think if we really pray that and we really hear his voice, then he's going to start using us. Even fumbling and bumbling to, with a humble heart, share his love, his kindness, his goodness with others. So would you pray with me? You just respond, maybe even pray this out loud together with me. Lord, teach me humility. Let's, let's pray it together. Lord, teach me humility. One more time. Lord, teach me humility. You just listen to the voice of the Lord. Maybe there's a, a jealousy that you have for a person. You know, that's an indicator of humility. Maybe there's just a, a person that you're just bothered by and agitated by. It could be that that's the person that the Lord is inviting you to sow some seeds of kindness and love to. Would you just pray a blessing over that person? We'll talk a little bit about insecurity. And I think insecurity is an indicator of a lack of true humility as we're defining it. If there's any area of insecurity in your heart and your mind, let the Spirit highlight that to you and say, Lord, help me to see myself as you do. One more, just a, an overemphasis of how people see us. That we're overly concerned with how people see us. Lord, would you help us to live for you and you alone? An audience of one.